Welcome to worship at Salem Alliance Church. Let's join Steve Fowler, lead pastor, as he begins. Well, we are in our Jesus series, and really the sub uh, the subplot in the month of January is in this Jesus series. Uh, as Barb mentioned, talking about these four uh, areas of a disciple's life that we believe uh, come from Scripture and are important to our journey together as Christ followers. Um, uh, that we talked last week about worship and, and looked at the story of the ten lepers and uh, talked about that we want to be a people who are grateful, a thankful people, uh, people who come back and worship Christ for uh, for who He is and, and for what He's done for us. And uh, so we, we believe it's important to be a worshiper. And today we want to talk about groups and community and the significance that community has in our life as a Christ follower. In the next two weeks we'll talk about service and, uh, and outreach. And today as we talk about groups, um, I want to sort of just take a different angle on it, a different perspective, step back for a moment and sort of wide angle the significance of being in community. Uh, and, um, and, and for me, in my, in my own journey, community has, has played a, a very large role. Um, I, I'm, I'm part of a small group. Uh, I love the guys that I get to meet with and, um, and, and grow with and just have fun with and, and yet be serious with and help and serve one another. Uh, it, it's, it's an important part of my own spiritual formation. And, uh, and I know for many of you, you're in groups and you know the significance of a spiritual friendship. Uh, you, you, you know uh, the beauty that comes from, from being in community with one another. And uh, so I, I want to just sort of, as, we, as we, we get to the topic of groups, I want to just wide angle for a second and, and, and go to a book in the Bible uh, to sort of lay a foundation. And you're probably very aware as you read books of the Bible that uh, there are, there are, there's a context that when we understand the context of a particular book, it provides a, another layer of meaning uh, that, that, we, that helps us understand what's being communicated. Like, for instance, if you read one of Paul's letters, you understand that, that Paul is a church planter. He's, he's traveling the known world, and he's planting churches. He's proclaiming Christ to people who've never heard of him before. And that's a context. When we did our study in the book of Jeremiah... Uh, we understood that the context for the book of Jeremiah was Israel's demise. They had turned to idolatry. They had uh, made foreign alliances and, uh, and, and turned away from their God. And that obviously helps understand the book of Jeremiah. Today, I want to look at the book of Genesis for a bit as we talk about groups. And I also want you to know that there is a context for the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is, is not written in a vacuum. There's, there's, a, there's something happening in which, the, which God wants to communicate uh, our beginnings. He wants us to know our, our creation story so that we'll know who we are and who He is. Uh, there is a, a historical context for the book of Genesis. Uh, the people of God were surrounded by multiple cultures. Uh, multiple cultures that, that had their own world view, their own way of, of looking at reality, their lens that they, they saw through to understand uh, the world and, and understand each other. And it was a very top-down understanding of, of our world. Um, and at the very top, well, let me just show you, uh, there's a map here, uh, 
God's people were surrounded by these multiple uh, countries and cultures. If you look on this map, uh, you'll see Elam, which is just at the north end of the, per- the Persian Gulf there. You'll find that word in the Bible, the people of Elam. That's modern day, uh, the tip of modern day Iran and Iraq. And, uh, and Mesopotamia kind of sweeping up there through Iraq. Assyria, which is part of Syria today. And Phoenicia, which is you know Lebanon, that area. And then all the way down to Israel, down to Egypt. The people of God were surrounded by all these cultures. And these cultures had a very... A unique way of looking at life, a very top-down, hierarchical, hierarchical way of, of viewing one another. So I, I want to lay that out for you. Hit the next slide there, Todd. Oh, that's so weird. That's, uh, that's a picture of my granddaughter. How about that? A little gratuitous clip of my granddaughter. Those of you here weren't last weren't here last week, and my daughter gave birth to our first grandchild, and I just you know thought I'd just throw a little picture in there. Okay, back to the sermon. Uh, back to the sermon. So these cultures had a context, okay, and they they saw life from a, a top down view. They were they were polytheistic cultures. So they saw, uh, they viewed that there were many gods. So at the top of this this uh, view of life, you have the gods. Multiple gods, many gods, and right underneath the gods would be the king. Kings were seen as an expression of the gods. In fact, many kings were were seen as divine, or at least semi-divine. They were they were uh, created in the image of the gods. All right, so only the king was. So it, it, the king was seen as divine or semi-divine, and it was, this, this was the physical representation of this, this many-gods concept that these cultures believed in. And right under the king, you've got the, the, the court of the king. And these people in the king's court, what they would do is, when the king made proclamations, like, let there be taxes, the people in the king's court would then you know, make sure that the, the taxes happened. They, uh, they were the one closest to the king. And if you wanted access to the gods, you, you needed access to the king. So if you were in the king's court, you were doing pretty good. You, you were, you were at the, at the, near the top of the food chain. The king was divine. And you still see this. I mean, you see it farther along in world history. The pharaohs were seen as, as divine. Caesar, in, in the time of, of Christ's life here on earth, he, he considered himself divine. A very top-down kind of view of, of, of life, a worldview. So it, it goes back thousands of, year before, thousands of years before Christ is born. So you have a king, you have God's the king, the king's court, and then you've got the priests. The priests were the ones who controlled the, the religious atmosphere of a culture that made sure things happened in a certain way. And underneath the priests then, you had your craftsmen, your artisans, and your merchants. These were your, uh, these were your professionals, your business people. Uh, they, they were kind of, kind of in the middle there. Under them, you had farmers. Uh, these were the, the families who were working fields and they're producing crops. And, and at the very bottom, uh, near the bottom of this, uh, this, this top-down view of how life happened, you had peasants and slaves. These are the people who are working the fields. The, this is near the bottom of the food chain, so to speak. Uh, these, these were the slaves who were working the fields. Um, actually, I just thought I'd put another layer below the peasants and the slaves, uh, the Auburn Tigers. Uh, 
I don't know, it just seemed appropriate. Wow, bummer. Okay, right back. Here we go. I'm re-engaging. So we're at, you got the peasants and the slaves at the bottom of this, of this food chain, okay? And if you're a peasant or a slave, you have zero dignity. You have zero value. You're a nobody. If you're a farmer, you're close to being a nobody. If you're the king, you're seen as divine. You're made in the image. You are the image of God. Uh, and if you're in the king's court, then you've got some position. There's this very top-down view. And uh, hit the next slide there, Todd, because what you have is that the king, seen as divine, made in the image of the gods. The, the Hebrews had a word for this. It was called Salem. And when a king would conquer other lands, what he would do is he would have his craftsmen and his merchants fashion Salem, which is a word in the Hebrews often translated idol. In, in, the, in the Old Testament. He would fashion these images and have them placed in these conquered territories. Even in his own country, he'd have Salem in view of the people so the people could see what God looked like. This is, you could see what God looked like. It looked like the king because the king was divine. If you were a peasant or a slave, you're at the bottom of the, of the food chain. You were seen as being created by inferior gods. All right, you, you were you were low class. You were the, uh, 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 from a lower caste. You were you were invaluable. And the king he would he would have his image made and shown to as many people as possible, so you could see what God was like. You could see the Salem. Now, that's the context for a, a people who believe this is what the world is like. And so what God does is he, he goes and he tells, he's telling his people their creation story. There were all kinds of creation myths. And so what God wants is he wants his people to understand their creation story. And so he says some very shocking things to a culture that looks very top-down, for multiple gods and a king who is the, the image of the gods and so on and so forth down. Uh, in Genesis 1, there's some fantastic news. In fact, would you stand as we read uh, these two verses together? If you'd read uh, with me, we'll, we'll pause at one section here, but read along with me. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Let me stop you right there. This is the Hebrew word salem. You've got God saying, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is God's holy word. You may be seated. Now, if you are a peasant or a slave and you discover that it's not just the king who is Salem, made in the image of God, the image of God, and there isn't just all these gods, there's one true God, and he has created male and female, all humanity, in the image of this one true God. This would be fascinating, stunning, astounding news. You suddenly have worth and dignity. You suddenly, you, you are an image bearer. 
You've been handcrafted. You've been fashioned by a God. And you are made in the image of God. No longer is it just one person who's seen as divine. All humanity, male and female, black or white, slave or free. You're made in the image of God. You have worth. You have dignity. This is why it's... This is so brutal when we, we suffer with, uh, with our self-esteem or self-worth or people are oppressed. Because God made you, he made us in the image of God. In fact, in Genesis, when you, when you hear the creation story, we see God as king. And God is making royal proclamations. Let there be, not taxes, let there be light. And there was light. You have seven speeches by God in which he creates the world. And if you're living in a historical context where you have this king who makes proclamations, you see, no, God is king. There's a one true God and he's made proclamations. And then he says these interesting words, let us make man in our image. It's one of the first clues right from the beginning in the Genesis story. Of a God who is triune. A God who lives in community. Let us make men in our image. This concept of, uh, that is it's captured in, in Latin as Imago Dei, image of God. Or in Hebrew as Salem Elohim. This, the, the image of God. People, all humanity, made in the image of God. And if you look around this room, and you can do that. Look, look around this room. You will see faces of people. You will see people who are Salem, who, who God has fashioned and he's placed all around the world, all around our nation, around the state, in this city. He's placed you to reflect his beauty, his goodness, and his character. You are his Salem. You are made in his image. Now, what does that got to do with groups? Let me ask a question. What would it be like if there were a community that saw one another as Salem? What would it be like if there was a place, if there was a gathering of people, if there were a community of people who looked at one another and saw someone made in the image of God? Who saw not a peasant or a slave, who not who saw someone as as handcrafted, who is an image bearer, the Salem of God. What would it be like if there were a community where, where someone who had resources saw someone who didn't have resources and met a need? What if there were a community where someone who, who owned an organization or a business saw someone who was jobless and provided employment for them because they had the means to do so? What if there were a community like that? I, I, I think it would be a community that, that would be so attractive to the people outside of it that they would they'd just be drawn to it. In fact, I believe that's what's happening in Acts chapter 2. When you have the genesis... Of the early church. You have the beginning of the early church. This expression of the family of God. Who have now discovered. Who they are in Christ. 
they've discovered, and, and it's, it's an ongoing discovery that, you know, if you're a Jew or you're a Gentile, there's, there's no order. <laughs> Jews aren't here, Gentiles aren't here. It's, it's like this. It's this level field where people are made in the, in the image of God. L- listen to the, the picture that is painted by Luke. As he writes, really in a historical fashion, as he, as he takes like a, a blank gray canvas and he uses words to, to like paint, to throw up on the, on the canvas and just watch the picture develop right in front of us as I read. Luke says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. It's, it's a wonderful picture of a people who looked at one another and said, there's a need, i got to meet it. I, want, I have to have a meal with that person. I can't wait to get to the temple court and be together again. It was, it was, a, it was a daily experience. And, and the early church had their genesis. In fact, Luke says in that last verse I read that the Lord added daily to their number. I believe there's multiple factors that adding daily. I think one of the factors is that there were people in the community in Jerusalem who were looking and seeing, man, that, that person's meeting that person's need. And they're loving that. I've never seen anything like this. And, and it, was, it drew them in. They, they, they took a closer look. Could this be for real? And they were attracted to it. Imagine we read a story about a guy named Barnabas who sells some land he has and just lays it at the apostles' feet so that the the people can, uh, their needs can be met. Unprecedented. If you go back to the the, the context uh, that they laid out at at first, this top-down view, this this is shocking and surprising. This community that so valued each other and meeting needs and valued being in relationship with one another. And here's where the tension, here's the tension we feel today. Because we, as we, sometimes the word progress is, you know, that we're experiencing progress. And there's certain types of progress we experience in culture today. But I believe one of the ways we're regressing has to do with relationships. A couple sociologists have made, uh, I, I believe, an astute observation They've written recently an article saying technology that decreases the distance between nations has increased the distance between neighbors. We know the news on the other side of the world, but not the neighbor on the other side of the fence. I think they hit the nail on the head. You see, we can go home tonight and watch whatever news channel we're going to watch. And we can hear about events happening all around our world. We can see flooding in Australia, flooding in Brazil. We can watch the, the, the horrible news of a shooting in Arizona. We, we, can, we, can, see the, we can even recognize the faces and know who, who these leaders are. Yet the person across the fence from us or across the street from us, we may not even know that 
they're depressed or lonely or that something great just happened in their life. There's this, this increase of knowing what's happening all around our world, unlike any other period of history in, 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 in any other time in, in world history. We know, we know so much, yet one of the struggles we have is we know so little about each other. Uh, Tim Dalrymple, written an article called Call to a Community, makes an observation about his own dad uh, living in the 1950s. He says, uh, when my father grew up on, on an Iowa farm in the 1950s, he saw 10 to 30 people on a typical day. He knew them all. He knew their stories. They knew his story. Today we see thousands of faces every day, yet know hardly any of the stories or the souls behind them. Surrounded by a sea of company, we die of thirst for companionship. When Trina and I were living in Hong Kong, uh, it's, it's a city 400 square miles Imagine, take a 10 mile, uh, mark 10 miles off here in Salem and go north 40 miles towards Portland. That's 400 square miles. And uh, drop 8 million people in that, in that land mass. That's, that's the size, that's the population of Hong Kong. There are people everywhere. They're everywhere. They're, if you were to get in an elevator... You'd be jammed in an elevator. It's not like an elevator over Broadway Commons where you may be the only one in it or maybe two other people in it. It's, it's, there's a line, there's a queue to get in the elevator. If you ride the subway, the subway there in Hong Kong moves 350,000 people an hour. You're, you're, you're in a subway and if it's rush hour and you're at that door as it's about to close, you better turn your face sideways because that door's going to clip your nose. You're, you're jammed in there. You're pressed in there. I mean, if you're claustrophobic, <laughs> you know, don't travel in the subway at, at rush hour in Hong Kong. Because you'll, be, you'll, you'll feel uncomfortable. There are people everywhere. There's no, there's no place to get alone. It's crowded. One of the observations that Trina and I made when we were living in Hong Kong was we see literally hundreds of thousands of faces every single day. And yet it feels like this crowded loneliness. People surrounded by people get still lonely. They don't know me. I don't know them. And, and there are people in our lives that we see every day. And they don't know your story, and we don't know their story. And it seems like the, the, the ability to be in relationship is becoming more and more difficult. Now, it's, it's, it's a technological relationship. And I'm not, I'm, not a, I'm not speaking against, you know, social networking or anything like that. I'm just saying there's something about being face-to-face with somebody, being in community with somebody. And here's why. You are his Salem. You are, you are God's image. Our image took a hit by sin. But Jesus was sent by the Father to restore his image in us. That's why Paul in Colossians writes, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. 
He's, he's the image of the invisible, invisible God. God comes uh, through Christ and restores us to the Father, restores His image in us. We're redeemed. We're made whole. And as His image bearers, reflecting His goodness, His beauty, and His character, one thing we need to understand is that God's character is a God who lives in community. Let us make man in our image. God lives in relationship. And when God sends his son Jesus, Jesus doesn't go to the cross. He doesn't go through this journey to the cross alone and isolated. He does it in community. He's got his 120. He's got his 72. He's got his 12. He even has his closest three. He does it in community. If you and I, as his Salem are being placed in different places all around the world, all around this city, meant to reflect His goodness, His beauty, and His character. We need to understand that part of reflecting His character is reflecting His value for relationship and community. You see, sometimes I think we fall into the false belief that groups or being in community is just a nice accessory that we could add to our discipleship journey. To be in a small group or be in a community group, that's just sort of a, a luxury. It's a, it's a nice accessory that we can add to our discipleship journey. It's not an, an accessory. In fact, I would go so far as to say, it is the journey. You and I were not meant to do this discipleship journey on our own. We're meant to do it in community. Because something happens in our spiritual formation that can't happen if we do it alone. I have a friend named Tom who um, on Monday night, shortly after the BCS game, was sitting on the couch with his wife. And uh, the, the, the day off the next day and they were going to watch a movie together. And Tom made a bowl of popcorn and his wife Ann was sitting on the couch and Tom walked in the room and sat next to his wife, Anne. And, um, and I was talking, Trina and I were talking to Anne this week, and he made sort of a snoring sound. And Anne said, that dirty dog, he's already fallen asleep. Um, well, he hadn't fallen asleep. That bowl of popcorn hit the ground, and he died instantly of a heart attack. Tom, a uh, very good friend of mine, um, Shocking, stunning news. Tom and I were together. We were in a small group. We, we were part of a small... We were in community together uh, for quite some time. He, he was also an elder uh, in our church. And uh, I, I, yesterday, was played a small role in a, in a funeral up in Kelso where, where Trina and I lived for nearly eight years, pastoring a church up there. And as I sat in the funeral, waiting my time to, to step up and share some words with the family. Um, I, I remember those days in community with Tom. He, he was one of those guys that um, he, w- he always wanted to help you. He would love to serve you. One time I needed to have some snow tires put on my van. I needed to ride back to the house. And, I, and we just moved to town. I didn't know anybody. I didn't have any community. I, I, I started in this church and I thought, well, you know, Tom's talked to me. I'll call him. And he came and picked me up on the way home. He thanked me for calling him to take me home. 
And I thought, aren't I supposed to be thanking you? He was just one of those guys who just, he just loved on you. He wasn't a small guy. He was a pretty, pretty big guy. Uh, you know, stout. He, he could be a little bit scary, too. When Tom spoke, people listened to him. He was wise. He was trustworthy. He was very godly. And there were moments in community when, when Tom would pull me aside and he'd say, I, I need to share something with you. Something that I, that I see that I just want to caution you on or a concern I have. I remember him doing this on two occasions and pulled me aside. And my heart always beat fast when Tom pulled me aside. Because I knew he was, he was going to be right. And I needed to listen to him. And he, he would speak and I would listen. And I, part of who I am today is, is because of guys like Tom who, who lived out Proverbs chapter 27, verse 6, where it says, the, the, the wounds of a friend are trustworthy. Part of how I have been spiritually formed as a, as a person, as a pastor, as a father, as a husband, is because of voices, different voices in my life who have helped shape me on the journey. I would not be who I am today had it not been people in community who have done the journey with me. I was devastated to hear of Tom's passing, but grateful that I had a Tom in my life. My question for us is, who's your Tom? Who knows you? Who do you know? Who's that spiritual friend that you would trust to say, I need to share something. You could speak into your life. They love you, but they're not impressed by you, if you know what I mean by that. (laughs) Who's your Tom? You see, because you... You are God's Salem. You're His image. You have worth, dignity, and honor to be called God's Salem. And as you reflect His beauty, His goodness, His character, part of reflecting His character is understanding that He is a relational God. And we do our best in reflecting who He is by being in relationship. You've been listening to Steve Fowler, lead pastor at Salem Alliance Church. If you've enjoyed this message, we'd love for you to be our guest at our worship service on our main campus at 5th and Market Streets in Northeast Salem. Worship services are Saturday at 5 and 6.30 p.m. and again on Sunday at 8, 9.30 and 11 a.m. If you'd like to receive a free Bible and more information on how to become a Christ follower, feel free to call our office at 503-581-2129. We'd love to know how we can serve you. And once again, that's Salem Alliance Church at 5th and Market Streets in Northeast Salem.